Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value and all the work it takes to actually get a customer to perceive value, sell it, and price it. Today, I am thrilled to have Kevin Dixon uh, from across the pond. He is the founder of and CEO of BoxStep, uh, a sales tool that helps selling organizations align with buyers' organizations. Kevin, welcome. Hey, Mark. How are you? Uh, really glad to have you. And uh, we'd had uh, a really nice luncheon a couple of years ago, back when the world was was uh, traveling. And uh, it's great to see your face again. Yeah, yeah. It, it, time flies by. I think we were saying earlier it's about three years ago. And uh, when you yeah. visited the UK, and and, and we we spent that little bit of time in that oak panel golf club room. Yes. So your company Box Step is a package, and I'm. I want to explain it to people because I'm really impressed with it. Having you know been the Miller Hyman consultant trying to get sellers to align with buyers, and you've got a, a a product that really helps people do that right out of the box. No pun intended. Yeah. So I tell you what, the best way to describe it is to go back to see how it evolved, to 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 see when that light bulb moment happened for me. So look, I, I spent a career in exec sales leadership and selling complex enterprise, high consideration deals, typically long sales cycles, typically higher value, and used all sorts of CRMs. And CRM, CRM is the foundation of most organizations in terms of sales goals. And then gradually, I was seeing change because I remember the days when if you wanted to close a deal, there were probably one, two, maybe three people you'd really have to convince, really have to work with. And gradually it was changing. And we've all seen now the Gartner research about the buying group, buying committee, how, what it, what was it, three, four years ago, it was 5.4. And now it's 11 plus, 12 to 14, if you're involved in technology. So I thought, great, well, CRM's there. It's not really buyer-focused. It isn't really focused on the intangibles, the who, why, what, when, and how. Who's involved? What's important to them? What's the politics that's going on in-house? Because the more you can work that out, the better positioned you are to help. So we didn't we didn't create a CRM replacement. That would be stupid because there's a lot of them. It's a massive market and dominated by the big four. But I felt like, you know, it was, I, I always describe it as we are to CRM what spinach is to Popeye. You know, it really is about trying to give it some muscle and say, because we need to be able to focus on the buyers. CRM isn't structured that way. So we're the complementary tool that starts to focus on the buying committee. So you can align yourself with them. You, and you can align how you sell by understanding what they're trying to do, how they're structured, how you can help them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, you know, it aligns so much with, with my work, uh, my position on the world of sales because value for what you're selling only exists in the customer's mind. 
a seller, you only get paid. Your commission only gets earned based on something that happens between somebody else's ears. It's not about what you do. It's about what you get to happen in somebody else's ears. So aligning with a customer is the only part of the job. Salespeople have predefined, prepackaged value packs. This is the value of our product. So it's predefined. They've already decided that you as their prospect or the customer, this is the predefined value they're going to deliver to you. It's not contextual. It's not always relevant. It's just predetermined. And I think one of the problems is, is that value is individual. We're all individuals. We all have opinions. We all have different criteria. We all have different perspectives. And that's one of the biggest changes we've seen in sales now, because you're not selling to an individual. You're selling to a collective. So you have to understand what's important to each person. How do they understand and determine value? And by the way, I saw a very simplistic view. If I'm ever talking to an individual, I look at value in one of three ways, business, personal, functional. You know, uh, how, how, what's their view on the value we deliver to their business, value we deliver them personally in their role, and functional, which is pretty pretty descriptive. So the, the problem is most salespeople, and here's the root cause. Salespeople don't know enough about the people they're trying to sell to, so they don't understand how they can help them and deliver the value. I had the good fortune, it turns out, of having multiple different careers in different industries. And a couple of those industries, commercial banking, you had to, with each new customer, you had to come up to speed and become pretty expert in that customer's business. You had to be able to make the case of why they're going to make, uh, continue to be profitable through good times and bad uh, for a 25-year loan. And so you had to be expert enough in their business to say, this is one of those businesses that will make it. So I developed this skill set of learning a customer's business, which I've kind of turned into a course. There's all the buzz of have insight, have perspective into the customer's business. And I ask you, how much insight can you have on something you don't understand? <laughs> we know the answer. We know the answer. You know, it's at the, There's a question. Every time I speak to a sales leader, I ask the same question. And, and it's you know, part of the early stage engagement discovery. I say, okay, let me ask you a question. Do you think if your salespeople knew more about their prospects, they'd be more effective selling to them? It's a pretty straightforward question, but there's always a pause because you know, it's almost like, ah, he's got me there because I know the answer is yes. So they pause. Then every single one I've ever spoken to said yes. So they agree. They agree that their salespeople don't know enough about the people they're trying to sell to. So it, it, it is about trying to say, well, how are you diagnosing and helping these people if you don't understand what's important and what their problems are, et cetera, et cetera? It's a vicious circle. We keep repeating. Yeah. And, and it, the problem is it's work to slow down and learn the bigger context of their business. And over and over, I've learned that the more different things you learn about the business, the more times you can find, you know what, my product, my service can impact that thing that's far afield that that customer hasn't told any other competing salesperson about? A con contextual relevance. It's massive. So look, if I go back, if I wind my long career back, you know, I grew up in sales when the art of selling was 
a problem. You know, it really was about charisma, relationships, uh, et cetera. Um, and we were in a strong position then that we, we had the product knowledge that wasn't readily available to the customers. Gradually now, we've moved where the blend of art has come as equally matched by the science. And the science says that we have to be subject matter and domain experts because otherwise contextual relevance can never appear. Because if you think about it, if you don't understand what's happening in their market and, and all the other things and the, the capabilities and solutions available, you can't help people. And I think you were fortunate, I suppose, in that circumstance you spoke about then, is you had that background knowledge. You knew how to apply something based on what you discovered. Now, I, I see a lot of salespeople are taught to discover, but not necessarily the competence and business acumen to solve. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's the big difference. And and I've got clients who say, well, yeah, Mark, I can do that, but I don't have all A players. And I maintain that it doesn't take an A player. You've got A players that you have not told, you haven't told any of your sales force to go discover and learn about a customer's business. And you have A players that went out and they do it on themselves, unguided, unmanaged, uncoached by you. What would happen if you started teaching, managing, and coaching all of your players to do what your A players do? How many more of them would behave like those A players? It's it's A players who go out and self-drive and come across these kinds of solutions themselves, but that's not something that only A players are capable of. So you, you've got me on a point here now where I'm, I'm going to, I suppose, piss off some A players. Um, a players for me is one of those things where some A players, A stands for lucky. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen so many people who really have very successful sales careers. A lot of the time, it's the geography, the knowledge, the preferential treatment they get in uh, internally, uh, the deals they cut on their targets or whatever that makes their performance look misleading. And here's one of the things that I use to back that information up. We have a sales performance win-loss feature within um, our, our platform. And a third of the time when a deal was won, the feedback from the buyers was that it was despite the salesperson. So the salesperson is saying, hey, yeah, another deal I've won. But actually, they nearly cocked it up. It was basic price, proposition, reputation, or whatever was so compelling that they ignored the salesperson, person, the A player. Uh, but don't get me wrong. There are some exceptionally gifted salespeople who really take the time to prepare. Now, one of the things I, I go back to, I was an A player. I, you know, and a bit of trumpet blowing there. Yeah, it sounds, sounds a bit... Um, braggy, but I was an A player because it was pretty easy to excel in those days. But, and I was very extroverted, very outgoing, very confident. Some of the best salespeople now are not necessarily a mirror image of me. They're not necessarily outgoing. They're not necessarily extroverted. They're not necessarily um, overly confident, but they're very knowledgeable, uh, very methodical, very organized, uh, very, uh, they, they really have empathy. And I know that's an overused word, but they're combining empathy and competence to be A players. So sometimes it's difficult to, to get that. You, it's difficult to teach empathy um, and business acumen, but you know, it, it, there's lots of reasons that, that we can make salespeople better. 
You know, I had a guest on a couple months ago who uh, specializes in a lot of the, the uh, typing, the uh, salesperson personality assessment. And they were working with a client that works with clients like ours, long sales cycle, highly consequential, uh, unfamiliar. And so they tested their salespeople and the top performers weren't this hunter type. They were the farmers. Yeah. Uh, the um, farmers were better at getting net new because in a long sales cycle, there are lots of disappointments and there's lots of, you've got to just put yourself in a mental lobotomy and keep grinding and you can't let your good days get you up or your bad days get you down. And the farmer was the one who could be methodical and empathetic and um something you were saying earlier is that the number of people on the buying committee has grown and that complexity is anathema to the quick hit, go in, raid and get out hunter. You it's, have it's almost impossible to, to do that now. I mean, the you know, I was, I was, I was a hunter, but I wasn't, you know, I was a hunter by reputation more than I was by reality in terms of, I was very, you know, before it was called buyer centric, I was very much on the buyer side because of the thought if I look after the buyer, the, the results will look after themselves and they did. Um, but if you start to look at what one of the biggest changes that salespeople haven't adapted to enough is that there's still this priority. We've got to get in at decision-maker level. We've got to get in, in at C-suite. Decision-making now is no longer done the way it used to be done. It's done, it's done by committee. It's done collectively. And a lot of the time, influence is more powerful than authority. So the decision, historical decision makers that still exist, they look for this group of people to come to consensus. So from a sales perspective, you know, you, that, that individual salesperson has got to adapt to the individual levels and individual needs of individual people. I, I often say now that selling is like building a jigsaw puzzle. If you don't have all the pieces in place, you can't complete it. And all those pieces are all the different uh, people. Yeah, you know, Kevin, I think you're you're onto something. I, I have noticed, you know, with this expanding number of people on the buying committee, that's because organizations have specialized and siloed and sub-siloed and sub-sub-sub-siloed and, and turned into a soda straw, right? And you're talking to each one of those 11 people are specialists in a narrower and narrower portion. And so your customers, the ever, nobody on the buying committee really understands the entire customer's business. They don't understand their own business, much less your product. Even their executive kind of has an understanding, and but you can't talk to them, especially when you started talking features and function with them um, and trying to give them a demo of your software rather than give them the, the executive level business benefits. And so we've trapped ourselves out and, and the need for understanding your customer's business and providing that for the team who doesn't understand it any better than you, their business any better than you do. And if you don't understand how all of the capabilities of your product or service can affect their business, neither of you know. You have to understand what the problems are with their business before yeah. you know how it can affect. And that's from people go automatically into how we're going to benefit your business. Well, hold on a moment. Who said there's anything wrong with my business? You know, you're, you're just assuming there are because 
you've got these pre-packaged, predefined value packages that you want to deliver to me yeah. without understanding whether they're, they're relevant or contextual. Yeah. It, yeah. Buying committee is, is a beast of a thing to deal with. And that's why if I look back at my extensive sales career, it was so much easier before because there were less people to understand, less people to get agreement with. Now, you know, everyone's viewing things differently and you've got to juggle that. Yeah. So having a larger buying committee means the decision complexity is higher, the social complexity and the social risk within that committee is higher. And uh, that is part of what is driving no decision to starting to win 40, 50, Big time. right? Have you ever in your selling career added somebody to the buying committee because you had a differentiation that the 10 people in the buying committee didn't care enough about. And there was one or two people outside of the buying committee who would be really your allies, your advocate. And so you actually purposely added people. Do you ever add somebody in? Uh, do you know what? I did, but it was before I knew about the concept of the buying committee. You know, I did yeah. it inadvertently, really, because I started thinking, right, okay, well, because especially when you're dealing with very, very large organizations, sometimes yeah. there's parallel projects going on and different things, and you go, whoa, this person's a player, you know, what we now call the mobilizer in the challenger context, you know, let's, let's bounce some ideas off from them. And before you know it, they're involved. You know, they're, they've joined a meeting because the more impetus you can build, the more momentum you can build, the more likely you can avoid no decision. And no decision, here's the thing, here's a question I ask people all the time. and say, you know, how do you find new opportunities? Because it, it's, and most of them say, well, it's pretty tough trying to find new opportunities. And I say, how do you find new opportunities is to look at your no decisions. Most people get a no decision and move on and forget about it. But if you understood why it was a no decision, you've got a chance to turn that back into an opportunity again because we never we never take the time to understand why. Why did it come to a no decision? And most of the time, it's because they didn't make they didn't achieve consensus. This 10, 11, 12, 15, whatever it is, people could not agree. Yeah, I looked. Um, yeah, I looked at some research on the the underlying reasons for no decision, and it was it was all about they didn't see the value of the solution. I couldn't find budget. Well, that's because the value wasn't there for the budget. And every every executive knows if there's enough value, I will move budget into this. Of course, space. every time. And every time. And if there's not enough value, I will move this budget that I've identified for this project out to somewhere else. So but budget is budget is a fig leaf. Um, the team couldn't decide, or there was disagreement between IT and the the using team. Well, it's because you didn't sell value to one side of that divide or the other. Um, the budget got moved away. There's not enough value. I couldn't find the ROI. There's not enough value. And so, so we discover the root causes of why it was a no decision. That's exactly. the thing you see. If we don't understand why. Why did they, and, and I say most of the time when people do win loss, it's why did we lose that deal? We thought we'd win it or we, we wanted to win it. So they, they focus on trying to understand why. They never focus on why they won it or why it was a no decision. We should be focusing every opportunity to learn what we do and what we need to improve it is going to determine our future success. And yeah. here's the other thing is that one of the big buzzwords, and you may have seen it already, the big buzzword now, you've got a multi-thread. Multi-threading, you know, you've got to engage with lots of different people so that, you know, you haven't siloed yourself into a single point of risk. 
And everyone's saying, yeah, what's your sales strategy? Well, multi-threading. No, no, it isn't. That's your defense strategy. You multi-thread to mitigate some of your risks. Your sales strategy has to build, be about building the consensus across that buying committee. And that is the most difficult part. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. Multi, you know, I, I was multi-threading for 30 years. And, Before it was called multi-threading. Uh, yeah, and and it, it wasn't, I wasn't multi-threading to talk to more people. I was multi-threading to get the group buying consensus and to make sure that there wasn't some um, anti-sponsor in the weeds. And I was, multi, I was multi-threading. Typically, uh, for a long time, I sold a product that was more reliable in use. And it was a component. So I would be design, designing into uh, uh, an avionics box that was going to go on a, on a jet aircraft, uh, commercial or military. And my, my connector or my cable was going to last longer in use. And the design engineers sometimes did and sometimes didn't care. But if you go out to the field service department, suddenly they cared a whole lot um, because in a box like that, the failure mode turns into an intermittent. And how maddening is it for a service organization to try to fix an intermittent thing on a $75 million plane and have that plane sitting on the ground waiting for that intermittent to show up again? So suddenly that reliability became huge. And so it was adding to the buying team by multi-threading, by finding the people. So multi-threading isn't the goal, it's the means to understand all of, to, to actualize or to, to realize the value and the differentiation you have and to get the team off of high center, to get the team off of no decision. I think, Anybody listening, if they think, ah, oh, a couple of smug sales guys telling us how perfect they are. The reason we're talking about this is because if you're like me, you've lost deals because you failed in this perspective. Oh, um, yeah. You know, I, exactly. And that's the point is when we learn through failure. Um, so what we're doing is we're sharing the benefit of failure with, with other people listening, saying, and, and now you're talking about way back when you first discovered, same as me, um, the implications for us that then were a lot less than they are now because multi-threading, consensus building, all those great aspects of understanding. I call it buyer discovery, by the way. Everyone talks about discovery. I say buyer discovery, you've got to identify higher, wider, deeper, everybody involved. But that whole work is the difference maker now. Without that in complex enterprise sales, you're pretty much doomed to mediocrity or failure. Yeah, I went on a tear a month ago. I'm pretty much off of it now, but I was saying stop talking about qualification because that's me-centered. Talk about discovery. Stop talking about winning a deal. Start talking about a mutual action plan. I mean, look at the split screen of when a deal gets signed on the sales side, they're ringing a bell on the sales floor and having a celebration or whatever. And on the customer side, somebody just said, I became accountable. There's cold sweat. And imagine those two and a split screen triggered by a signature on a piece of paper, one on the buyer side and one on the seller side. So thinking of yourself and thinking of after the sale, when it's really in our business, so many of our clients, it's between sales. Yeah. And if I, 
So I, I, it's it's some semantic stuff, but I think the mindset behind the semantics you use is important. Mutual action plan, you, know, I, you may not be aware of it, but thanks for bringing it up. It's the middle part of our platform. I'm very uh, so, aware of it. Oh, I thank you. For, <laughs> but it's, I think that salespeople who have used them in the past, whether it's Excel spreadsheet or whether it's Word document or some of these standalone silo platforms that can be a bit pricey, uh, are seeing great results from them. But uh, the warning I would always highlight to people, if you make the mutual action plan about your close, or what, because we used to call them close plans. Yeah. Um, if you make, you make them about you, then they sniff that out pretty quick. This is about saying you're supposed to be helping. You're supposed to be almost neutrally guiding them to navigate their own complexity. And that's a difficult thing for most salespeople because we are contrived, because we're biased, and because we're focused on our outcomes rather than theirs. You know, the, the, the mutual action plan can very easily become seller-centric. So yeah. that's the big warning. I think they're a super powerful tool when they're fully focused on helping the buyer committee achieve their goals, not your own. Because off the, back of that, yeah. off the back of that, you've differentiated the buying experience, so you've added value. Absolutely. Uh, friend Rob Hartnett said, sell like you're already doing business together. What do you think of that? Yes, great, great way to say it. I know Rob. I know of him. So, yeah. Uh, he Smart and I man. worked together at Miller Hyman um, and he was, uh, he, yeah, he's just a great individual. Um, so you've kind of said it, but uh, I'm going to, I'm going to say it my own way a little differently and have you react to it. The days of the one-size-fit-all value proposition, the days of the pre-packaged value proposition are over. Customers in their consumer lives have stopped expecting them. They expect a personalized outcome and they've started expecting it in B2B. Your thoughts? Totally. So, you know, I, look, let me give you an example. A long, long time. I did a startup back in 2001. And it was uh, in the early days of, we were the pioneers of how you download an application to a mobile phone. And uh, now you do it all through App Store and Google Play, etc. But it was almost like, how do you present a personalized menu to an individual? And I said, I, I'm a pescatarian. I eat fish and seafood. I think if I went to a restaurant, and the experience was I opened up the menu and I didn't see all the meat dishes and all the other stuff. I just saw what was relevant to me. That was all about me. And in selling, we've got to make the recipient of who we engage with, that individual member of the buying committee, feel like we're focused on helping them in their role contribute to the overall business decision and the business outcomes. So the pre-packaged thing, forget it. Forget, I mean, you're doomed to failure if you go out there with the end game already sorted and you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to tell them that. I'm going to, unless you know what's important to them, unless you understand that person, how you can be helpful and value to them, then you know, you're wasting your time. So we've got to move away from this seller first mentality. I, um, yeah, I, I completely I, agree. So one other thing, my last question, and then um, we've got a break. Um, I think that so many sellers talk about features and they're proud when they go to benefits, but they don't talk about customers and outcomes. And so our product training is about features and benefits. And we expect our customers 
to do the translation between those benefits and the customer's desired outcome. We're expecting the customer to go fishing in our well for us rather than taking our product training and saying, these are the outcomes that we typically deliver. Mr. Customer, let me see if this is the outcome. So we have to translate into outcomes for a customer when we're talking. But instead, so many sellers are talking about features and benefits. They want to give you their our demo. Your thoughts? Oh, completely. Uh, it's still automated. People are still, you know, they've gone into autopilot to let me tell you about me, 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 me. What I try and do is I try, you know, it goes back to what we said earlier on, contextual relevance, competence, subject matter and domain expertise. I'm a, a career-long sales leader, so I can... You know, I safely say I've spent many years um, understanding the person that I'm selling to. So when I'm trying to do a demo or I'm talking to say, say, look, one of the things I can think, you know, I always say to people, the reason I lost my hair was because of deal reviews with salespeople. Uh, <laughs> and they laugh at that. And I say, you know, uh, what's it like with you guys? You know, da, da, da. So let me just show you a way that you might be able to make the deal reviews more productive for you more productive so what i did is i highlighted on a known problem and that okay that's a generic problem but i asked them to at least confirm it before i went into it because if they said oh no we've perfected it I go, okay well well done you and then you try and focus on another well-known problem that the, the the buyer persona that you're engaged with at that time suffers from yeah um, so you know the, the the competence the knowledge the domain expertise is so so important far more important than ever before and that's a really great segue into um, everybody, please check out Voxstep, B-O-X-X-S-T-E-P.com, uh, a fantastic solution to, to implement a lot of the things that Kevin and I have been talking about. Kevin, how can people get a hold of you? Uh, usual, LinkedIn. Um, LinkedIn, Kevin Dixon, D-I-X-O-N. Um, always happy to connect with other people in the sales industry or associated industry. Uh, if you want to email me, if you've got any questions, uh, just Kevin at boxstep.com. Great. Kevin, thank you. Uh, it's been a great conversation. I think you and I are very much kindred spirits. I've felt that for a while. And uh, it's it's always fun to get each other wound up on these things that we agree with. <laughs> so strong. You, know, you, you say, why the amount of times I've, I've sat with people say, we're, you know, we get biased there in a conversation. And then most of the time we end up agreeing because, you know, we've, we've spent so much time looking at this and, and, you know, we're passionate about helping other people think more biocentric minded and, and value minded, of course. Yep. So thank you. Uh, and thanks everybody for joining us on this episode of the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that value only exists in your customer's mind, which means your success with your customer sits really all in your customer's head. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.